listening to Napa Register Radio. I'm your host, Yusef Bay. Welcome. You have found the official podcast of the Napa Valley Register and its sister publications, the American Canyon Eagle, St. Helena Star, and the weekly Calistogan. We are your number one source of information for news and happenings in the Napa Valley and Napa County. So this project is an extension of that. Um, We are trying to provide information in a way that fits your lifestyle better than necessarily the traditional newspaper method of uh, reading and processing. And it's kind of an idea that I had more so just because of my passion for podcasts and how much I enjoy the medium. And I think it's uh, absolutely a big way going forward for us learning about things and hearing stories. I think it also kind of reinforces the idea that uh, newspapers aren't dying. Like a lot of people say, they are evolving and changing. And to say they're dying implies a finite existence and looming death in some respects. And I don't think that uh, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, if anything, you know, we will always need information and news to be a functioning democracy as much as that might seem like a stretch uh, these days. Um, But I think that also puts in perspective, uh, you know, why there's been a rise in subscriptions and people are investing in their local newspapers and national papers like the Times and the Post again, because uh, President Trump and, you know, sort of the movement that has uh, allowed him to come to power uh, very much indicate a uh, divide, not only between, you know, race and class and all these different things that people talk about publicly, but also just sort of the divide between understanding our reality and processing it in a way that makes us uh, the best uh, democratic individual in a country like this. And so um, just to bring that back to us in this podcast, I think um, you should absolutely be turning to your local newspapers now more than ever, because we are the closest connection to that bigger world and that bigger picture. And the best way to understand how you relate to that macro level is to have a grasp of your micro level. And that's why Napa Register Radio is going to hopefully tie that together in a different way than maybe you're used to. Um, You know, if a quarter of the country almost said that they have listened to podcasts in the past month, that means that there's absolutely a uh, an imprint from this medium in society. And it is uh, connecting with people in a way uh, that clearly, you know, it it clearly is going beyond just sort of what I think it intended at the beginning, which was just sort of, you know, a free space for people to kind of have an unfiltered um, broadcast. So for Napa Register Radio, what it is, is us bringing the stories that you get from our print products and online um, in a different way. So, you know, a lot of times there are uh, deeper, more dense and bigger picture stories that might need some unpacking and discussion to fully grasp what is happening. So for Napa Register Radio and for why it's important to you, it's, it's us doing that exact exercise. It's talking to the reporters, talking to people in town, you know, whether it's news and, you know, what people are up in arms about or what they're celebrating or something as simple as a trend in the wine business or a local entertainment establishment that might be changing or, you know, who's coming to town to play music or what's the latest restaurant that's picking up steam. 
what are what's everybody drinking right now what vintage is is really doing well what's a good time to open this one and it's just all these different aspects of napa valley life that i think come to play it's as much as you know napa valley is a international destination and world renowned for its you know wine industry and its beautiful scenery and all the things that make it unique um, it is very much locally driven the people that call napa valley their home are passionate about their community and you see it in the responses to facebook posts on our page when we share stories and you see just kind of the way that the community leans when it comes to news and how it reacts to specific types, whether it's education or politics or um, agribusiness or labor related. It's there so many different dimensions that affect everyone in this community in some way. And I think having a show dedicated to looking at those and all the different stories that people are talking about, it's a great way for us to develop our relationship even deeper with this area and also just kind of feel more informed about the world that we live in and i think that's that's the main goal i want to get across and get home is just you know being better individual people because of the information we have about the world around us and so you know this is going to be a fluid project you know it could be different six months from now it could be different a month from now and i want there to be an open channel of discussion you know tell us what you want to hear about tell me what you like uh covered if there's anything that's not being covered and you know, this is very much your podcast as it is ours, and um, I'm really glad you found it, and I'm looking forward to the ride, and I'm glad you guys are coming along with us. So in every episode, after kind of the introduction, there'll be a portion like this where I kind of break down what we have in store for each episode. Usually there'll be uh, d- discussions with different guests and staff members. Um, this week we have three guests and three discussions to get to. Later in the show, we'll have sports editor Marty James on to talk about uh, Napa High Vintage and American Canyon High Schools and their potential move from the Sac Joaquin section to the North Coast section, uh, what it means, uh, why it's happening, and uh, just sort of the details along with that story. And a little bit before that, we'll have St. Helena Star editor Dave Stoneberg on to talk about the Napa Valley Vintners panel and that collaboration with the St. Helena Star, uh, how it came about, why it's awesome, and why you should pay attention to it if you care about wine and the latest uh, things happening in Napa Valley. It's a really great thing that's kind of developed, and it's uh, really something I feel like if you're in the wine industry, you should pay attention to because it really keeps you on top of sort of where the industry is going and what's happening as it plays out in real time. It's a really cool thing, so uh, we'll get to that later. But first, our main segment today is a discussion with Maria Sestito and Howard Yoon, uh, two very talented staff writers here at the Register. And uh, they were the ones that covered the Napa High hazing incident. And so we kind of go into the details of how it came about, um, You know what could happen from here, uh, what it says about sort of athletics and bullying and sort of the inner workings behind the scene that maybe don't get talked about as much and sort of the nature of that. Uh, it's a really great discussion. I hope you guys enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Napa Valley Register reporters, Howard Yoon, Maria Cistito, and myself talking about the Napa High Hazen incident. I'm here with Maria Cistito and Howard Yoon. And we're talking about a pretty sore subject i think if you're a napa native and especially if you're involved with napa high school um obviously talking about the hazing incident 
and uh, you guys are the ones that reported on this story first uh, for the register and I guess it'd probably be good just to start with you Maria just sort of um, you know when the story kind of came your way uh, kind of what was the first day reporting on it like what was the information available um, you know what was that first report like it got a little crazy since so many other news media picked it up which is not typical for Napa yeah um, and obviously the school and the police department, you know, involves minors, so they're a little guarded on giving out information, which I think continues to be a challenge, finding out what happened. Um, because they're junior varsity players, so that means they're freshmen, sophomore, they're under 16, 17, they're not adults, and they're also protected because they're school students. There's a specific act. I think you know what it's called, Howard. It's uh, the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Yeah. So what exactly does, I guess, that guarantee for the kids? It guarantees privacy that their names do not get out in educational or disciplinary matters. Yeah. As long as it doesn't rise to the level of the district attorney charging them as adults. Right. In criminal court. Yeah. So I guess as the story sort of developed, you reported on, I guess, the second wave of information, kind of what came about, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, that more information and detail surfaced. There have been parallel inquiries, one by the police department, the other by the Napa Valley Unified School District. Now, Napa Police has not publicly disclosed anything, but earlier this month, Napa Unified did say that based on their own investigation that hazing did, in fact, occur among JV football players in the weeks leading up not only to the 2016 big game, but the 2015 big game as well. So it's basically, it's something that's been happening at least as far as we know for two years. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's probably important to kind of tell, you know, people what big game is too, if they're not as familiar with it. It's when they play vintage and it's, you know, this huge cross-down rival game and even though it might not be as competitive as it maybe it used to be, it's still a big deal. And this is probably, you know, something you could kind of say is a rite of passage for these kids. Yes, and it's the rite of passage part that gets so easily abused. Yeah. But, yes, for those of you who may be listening to this broadcast from outside Napa, outside the Bay Area... This football rivalry has existed ever since Vintage, the second public school here in the city of Napa, opened for business in 72. And there has been a big game every November since. Yeah, and I, I think it's also kind of important to kind of clarify what hazing is and sort of how it relates to sports. Because, um, you know, I, I saw when I was just kind of doing some research that there was a study that found that 80% of college athletes say they've been hazed at some point in their life. So it's, you know, and granted, you can kind of poke holes at a study and say that, you know, it just depends on who they were talking to, how many were involved in the study, etc. But at the same time, it sort of opens the door to this debate whether we should care and why we care and is it a big story and why isn't it and sort of all the elements that come into play like that. Um, so, I mean, I guess, I guess how do you guys sort of uh, rectified, you know, the relationship with hazing to, I guess, this sport and sort of, is it, is it appropriate, I guess, to kind of have these kind of conversations? Before I get anywhere near expressing my opinions on the subject, and I say this as a non-athlete, hazing, depending on how you look at it, can be the most slippery to define or a surprisingly th clear thing 
right. to define. Because if you went for the broadest definition of hazing, you could say, just for the sake of argument, that if you're a rookie on an NFL team and the veterans force you to sing your college fight song off-key to your other 52 teammates, that's technically hazing, but technically, no one yeah. would ever file a complaint about that. Right. Well, maybe if you're super shy and you have a lot of anxiety over it. Well, when you're doing it for money, you put that aside. And I think it's, it's you know, a big thing with hazing, too, is there's there's a lot of, like, sort of psychological elements that come with it. People could have, you know, they could have a traumatic moment in that on that day during that incident that could affect them down the road in a number of different ways, you know, because a lot of times you see it as sort of like a team-building, bonding type of thing, but there's also this, you know, there it's not like that for everyone. You know, some kids can get extremely scarred by it, and I think that's probably why... I think I think that would be that you know the reason that people would say they care about this incident in that way is because you know some of these kids might be affected by this for the rest of their life. It's hard to really you know figure out which ones are and which ones won't be. I think the common thread, a common thread. I, I'm sure there's more than one, but a common thread is the understanding that if you don't follow through with this, you will be ostracized if right. not harassed by the others. Yeah, it's the emotional blackmail. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it, this might be kind of personal. Were either of you guys ever bullied at all when, when you guys were younger? Is that something that you guys have dealt with? I think that's kind of the one way that we can sort of relate to this incident as if, you know, we were picked on when we were younger. I mean, I can, I know I, you know, just kind of being an immigrant and growing up, you know, you know, I was in sixth grade when 9-11 happened and I wasn't necessarily bullied, but, you know, there were a lot of things that people would say that they might think were you know, as offensive uh, at the time, but, you know, inside you kind of just have to power through and digest it. And it's not as easy, I think, for some people. I don't know if that's something you guys have ever experienced in your lives. I mean, I experienced some bullying, but I, I feel like I I didn't really understand where, where it came from and I didn't care as much. I yeah. mean, I'm sure it had some effect, but nothing, nothing, no hazing or but I also didn't get into groups like that. You know, I didn't want and I didn't need anyone's acceptance. Yeah. I was kind of independent like that from an early age. Yeah. But it kind of is like it does depend on the person. Like sexual harassment. One person could be okay with you making, you know, a sex joke in front of them. And another person's not. It's still sexual harassment. Right. What about you, Howard? I can't say that I was ever hazed for many of the same reasons that Maria says she wasn't because I was not a joiner yeah. as a child or as a teenager. Well, I'm glad I got two very independent people yeah. over there. You don't there. get a lot of hazing on the bowling team. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess not. Well, I mean, there is still a police investigation ongoing. I think that's um, kind of the one element that's still open-ended. I mean, I guess what could happen from here? I mean, what what are some of the repercussions that could happen to the, to the kids? Well, to the kids, I guess it would depend on. They said no, there was no physical injuries, you know, or although there a may a physical fight or something seems to have occurred, you know, no one was injured, so it's not. It wouldn't be a felony charge. They could have a misdemeanor charge if they chose to go that route, but we don't even know the extent. I mean, people, you know, if the physical assault was bad enough, I mean, people could die from it. So right. I mean, that would be a reason people would be interested if one kid gets, you know, too fired up, what would happen? And unfortunately, sometimes it takes the extreme cases for people to stop taking hazing for granted. Yeah. 
I can't say that hazing for me as a journalist and as, as a sports fan was top of mind until 2011 because that was the year that the Florida A&M marching band engaged in a hazing exercise in which one of their new band members, Robert Champion, was forced to run the gauntlet from one end of the team bus to the other while being beaten up yeah. by his bandmates every step of the way, and he died. Yeah. And one of his one of his bandmates is in state prison as a result now. Yeah, so I mean, you, you kind of see the spectrum of it that, you know, it could be as simple as just, you know, getting slapped by somebody to something like that, you know, and, and you know, it could be sexual, it could be, you know, emotional. I mean, there's so many different forms of it that make it such a, you know, a complex thing. And I think that's why the word hazing just kind of sets people off in different ways. And there's no real, you know, I guess there isn't really an objective way to kind of look at it because it could play out in so many different ways. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a strange thing, you know, to have it in your backyard and kind of have these conversations. I think the other thing that is concerning is we know about it for 2015 and 2016 big game, but that doesn't necessarily mean it hasn't been happening for years. I didn't go there. You know, I wasn't on that team. I have no idea if this has been happening for years and just no one knew about it. Yeah, I think that's important with hazing too is there's kind of this fraternal element to it where people are, uh, you know, I guess you sort of, you know, you don't say anything, you don't tell anyone. It's If it happens, you just kind of move on and go on without it. And it's, it's uh, you know, I think there's sort of that brotherhood element to it too where, you know, this could have been going on since the first big game and it just, you know, somehow came to life for whatever reason. And I think that's, you know, it, it kind of, that could be, you know, why, you know, Brian King resigned is because I think there's there's much more at play than just these two years. And I think there's more that happened that we may never know um, that kind of forced his hand like that. And no official reason was given for his resignation. The nearest thing there was to a clue in his statement in the email that eventually uh, became public was his referring to this as being a very difficult decision, but he did not elaborate. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, where did, where did the team, you know, where does Napa go from here? What's the lesson learned by the other schools nearby? I mean, you know, has anybody hinted at steps that could be taken, how they could curb this in the future? When the school district announced that, in their judgment, hazing had taken place, the district said it would try to research best practices for other school districts who had taken steps specifically to prevent hazing. What those steps are, it's too early to say. It's a, uh, yeah, God, man. You know, it's just, <laughs> we really don't know what to do with it. I think that's the toughest part too, because you know, it could happen again and we just might not know. The other thing we don't know is if it happened on school grounds or not. You know, I mean, when you go into college, everyone talks to you about rape and underage drinking and all these things, but even if they talk to the kids, you know, will it actually make an impact later on in the season? And whatever steps are taken, steps do have to be taken here because the odds are that when hazing takes place here or in any other city, the odds are that it does not get mentioned to parental authorities, school authorities, or law enforcement authorities. 
I came upon some numbers from the University of Kentucky, which hosts something called the Novak Institute, which specializes in the study of hazing, how frequently it happens, how authorities respond to it. And I think there are two numbers that jump out at me. Yeah, First, it. that only 5% of hazing incidents actually get reported to someone based on their polls. And secondly, at the college level, at least one college student has died as a result of hazing every year since 1969. Wow. So I don't think we've learned very much. No, and I think that, you know, I think that tells you everything right there. It's that this, you know, behind closed doors, tradition, I mean, just all these elements that work into something like hazing. As much as we, you know, try and talk about preventing it when we hear about it, I don't think it really makes a difference. You know, it's, I think the new Major League Baseball collective bargaining agreement, I think one of the things that were thrown in there was hazing. As, you know, they're trying to reduce incidents where, you know, rookies are, you know, buying extra dinners or they're dressing up in drag and all the different things that they're trying, that guys have been doing and it kind of makes the debate pop up again. But, you know, I don't think there really is a way to get it out of sports and get it out of youth culture because it's just so deeply rooted and it's been that way for so long. I mean, I think it's in other areas too. Before this, I was reading about a, a firefighter in New York who experienced it. And then, I mean, I know people in the military who have definitely experienced things that could be defined as hazing. Yeah. It's just like initiation tradition. You know, it's, I guess people just can't come on, shake hands and say welcome anymore. It's, you kind of got to test your, your merits and kind of prove your worth a little bit. It's, uh, it's a strange thing. I don't know if you guys have anything else to add, but... I may have one or two things to add. Sure. Since we're talking about what hazing is and is not, the state of California actually does define hazing in its penal code, and it refers to any method of initiation or pre-initiation into a student organization. So it's in the definition, yeah. Yes, but not every state defines it this way. And there are, according to ESPN's Outside the Lies, there are actually six states that do not specifically ban hazing in any form. And then there are 13 states that do have hazing bans, but sports teams are exempt. Yeah, wow. Well, I think that into the group, the initiation into the group, I think that's what makes it different from, you know, your average bullying. You know, it's not one person picking on you. It's like a whole team and there's expectations and yeah, tradition and it's like a an accepted form of bullying. Right. It really is. And it's it's so and to see that kind of be the countercurrent against the culture that we have now to stop bullying and things like this, it's you know, it I think accepted bullying is such a great way to characterize it because you know, it's it's really hard to say that we might be able to stop it, ever. We'll have to ask ourselves, when does belonging start to shelve into Omerta? And secondly, I would hope that it, more of us would get to the point that we're strong enough in our hearts to understand that sometimes belonging is not worth any price. But I understand how hard it is to, to truly believe that when you're 15 or 16 years old. I mean, that, 
none of us are parents. So yeah. I think that, you know, maybe a parent would have a different perspective, you know. Um, I mean, that you would try to, I would think you would try to, you know, develop enough self-esteem in your kids so they would tell you if something's going on and, and that they wouldn't be prey to that. But you just don't know. I mean, high school stuff. Yeah, it is. And I, I mean, we... As former high school students, we understand like the power of wanting to fit in and be accepted and belonging. And I think that's why, you know, when we we say things like that, it you know, it's still it's almost empty in a way because there is deep down that human desire to fit in and have relationships and bonds and things like that that make, you know, hazing accepted like that. So, I mean, we'll you know, we'll see how this police investigation plays out if anything comes of it, if anything happens to these kids. You know, it's. I think regardless of what happens, I think you you will never see this tradition at Napa again. You know, I don't think that this will be the kind of thing. And if they do, it'll be so closed doors that no one will ever be able to find out. Because, you know, the fact that it did and it took however many years for it to happen, I think says enough. And I'm sure these kids have, you know, we might not know who they are, but they obviously do and their community does. And uh, I think that kind of that kind of punishment in itself is probably just as strong as anything you know the legal system could do so thank you guys thank you my thanks again to howard maria for coming on and having such a thoughtful discussion Uh, I know it's a little bit dated in terms of newsworthiness, but it's an important topic. And, you know, in a community this small with a team that uh, obviously supporters take a lot of pride in, it's it's absolutely a sensitive subject. But um, it's something that I don't think people talk about enough, sort of the the culture around hazing and bullying and stuff like that. So it's good to kind of just be able to take a step back and look at it from a bigger picture sense. Um, So thankful for them for coming on and talking about that. Um, and a better note, my next segment is with Dave Stoneberg, and we talk about Merlot's and the Napa Valley Vintners panel and just sort of um, a little conversation about wine. It's probably clear how much I don't know about wine and uh, am constantly learning, so it might be a good thing, might be a bad thing. We'll see how it goes and what you think, but um, here is my chat with Dave Stoneberg. You're the first guest that I've had on here, and it's kind of like it's a great. it's kind of a, a weird day too, just because today's Trump's inauguration, and I feel like uh, there's kind of that weird vibe that's going over people, like there was on November 9th when no one really know or knew what was going on or how to like react afterwards. But we're talking about wine, which is probably a good thing for people because they need something to kind of take the edge off these days uh yeah absolutely let's uh let's get into that um i think if you drank a a glass or two of wine you'd feel much better about today (laughs) that's probably true i mean just because there's there's the thing about napa and this is why i wanted to have like a wine segment is because this is what everybody's coming here for it's come for the wine come for the experience that comes with drinking wine with making it there's a crazy culture and environment that's built around here that you don't really have in other type of agricultural circles it's you know california is such an agricultural state but wine is so specialized and advanced and it's so uh there's this boutique element to it that i I don't think is in any other type of agricultural space 
I totally agree. And 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 what it's what it begins with is the Mediterranean climate. Yeah. In the Napa Valley. Okay, so right now it's raining. It's pouring rain. We've had more rain in January than we've had in years. Yeah. You'll go by and you may see a vineyard underwater. Who cares? The vines don't care because they're dormant right now. Yeah. They could, that water's going to help. It's going to, you know, soak down into the aquifer, going to help in the spring. Yeah. But right now the vines are dormant. Uh, and, and so this is a quiet time in the vineyard. Yeah. Not so in the cellar. Right. In the cellar, guess what they're doing? They're blending the wines. They're getting them out of their oak barrels. They're putting them in bottles. They're going to put those bottles in the winery. They're going to be released maybe in May. Yeah. And so uh, it's kind of a year-long process, right, to, to grow the grapes, to harvest, you know, grow the grapes and harvest them in, in August or September or October. Then you ha- let the wine sit in an oak barrel for a while, maybe as long as two years. Yeah. And then bottle it and then go out and sell it and drink it and so we're really at the end we're at the end of the process we're celebrating it and we're drinking it yeah well i wanted to talk to you about the napa valley vintners which is something you started right the napa valley vintners st lena star tasting panel yeah so i guess kind of fill people in on what that is how it started sort of what it's become it started actually in 2017 is our 10th anniversary wow and it's a um a month every month we have a wine tasting uh, we typically taste 24 wines. We'll have 25, 26 people there, primarily vintners, uh, wine growers, uh, the people who make the wines, or assistant wine makers, and we'll judge wines. In December, we discussed the high end. You know, Napa Valley, the king uh, of Napa Valley is Cabernet Sauvignon. Of it's course, a, a yeah. Red, a dark red blend. They get a ton of dough for a bottle of wines. We tasted 25 Cabernet Sauvignons ranging from price from 85 bucks to 325 bucks. Wow. What yeah. a tough gig. It's a tough gig, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. So, you want to know the favorites? I would. All right. One, one that you may know is Yao Family Wines. It's their 2013 Family Reserve from Napa Valley. It's 225 bucks. Talk a little bit about Yao Ming. Yao Ming, yeah. I mean, obviously everybody knows him as like one of the tallest basketball players we've ever seen. And now I guess he has this St. Helena wine, and it's already, I guess, whoever the winemaker is, they're already working wonders. He has a taste. He has a tasting room in St. Helena on Main Street, St. Helena. You go there and taste his wines. Um, some of the other favorites were um, Patlin Estates Vineyards, uh, $2,013, $110 a bottle. There were two that I wanted to mention. A Davies Estate, 2012 Zephyr from the Napa Valley, it was $85. Yeah. And... Charthia Cellars 2014 it was also 85 bucks so it kind of shows you like high-end wines aren't always necessarily going to be the best if they're at $300 $85 a bottle is still you're getting a quality wine $85 is a lot of money for a bottle of wine yeah but not in comparison so they were talking about uh, Tom Rinaldi has been a long time wine grape grower winemaker um, and he was saying the 2012 and 2013 fabulous vintages. Yeah. Absolutely fabulous vintage. And what makes a fabulous vintage? Wonderful weather, long, uh, long period growing of the grapes uh, so that they go through like October before they get ripe, before you pick them. 
that's where the wine starts in the vineyard. So where does so what is like the weather characteristics that make like those kind of vintages? Is that like a super dry year? Is it is a drought almost a good thing for wine? The grapes need uh, need water, obviously. There's there's a there's a balance there yeah. between stressing your vines and not giving them any water or giving them a little water, stressing the vines. You put too much water in the vineyard, your grapes are going to be big and plump and juicy. Yeah. You want them not that way. Right. You want them small and concentrated so the flavor's there. So you stress them. But if you've got old vines, maybe you don't need to water them at all during a drought. So is a drought good for the wine industry? No, because we still need the water in the aquifers. Yeah. I love this rain. Everybody I've talked to is absolutely loving this rain. That's good. So yep. what, So I guess if there are, if you get a lot of rain like in the winter part of the year and it gets to the summer and say it's dry, you know, all the way through from, uh, you know, June through October when they pick them. Absolutely. That's, that's the perfect. ideal. Yeah. That's ideal. Yeah. So maybe people should be excited about whatever gets bottled in 2016. I Maybe. Maybe. It's, it's too early to tell because the grapes haven't been picked. I think we get excited about 2012. Yeah. I think we get excited about 2013. 2014 was another good year. Uh, too early to tell how the th- 14s are, are being because there are just a few that are being released because it's still pretty early for a 2014 Cabernet to be released to get out into the market. Yeah. Well, I want to talk more about the Vintners Association, though. I mean, how, how did you guys kind of pick the people that became part of the panel? Uh, what was the reception like? I, I think the just kind of finding out about the history of it and why it's important okay. and why it matters, I think that's a good thing for people to know about. So 10 years ago, the San Lina Star was tasting wines from all over the world. And that's not really useful because the St. Lena Star is a local newspaper. We're in the heart of the Napa Valley. Why aren't we tasting Napa Valley wines? So 10 years ago, we decided we're going to taste Napa Valley wines. We're going to taste wines that are made here, the grapes are grown here. Um, And so we've been doing that ever since. The people change, um, but they're mostly winemakers or assistant winemakers from Napa Valley from the Napa Valley Vintners Association. They're there by invitation. Um, and we generally have 25 or 26 people there. How do you guys choose the wines that come? Is, is someone bringing a bottle from wherever they um, work? or No, it, it's all based, it's through the Napa Valley Vintners. They have a sign-up list. And so you're able to submit your wine and then there's a cutoff. Yeah. So if you submit your wine, you probably won't get into the next tasting, but you might in the one after that. And so every every six months, there's a committee of us that get together and decide what vintages we're going to taste, what wines we're going to taste. So we have a whole year put out. And we do these tastings at the Culinary Institute of America at Greystone, world famous for its culinary program. Yeah. I mean, come on. You, you can't get any better than that. And we, we are in the Rudd Center, which is a professional tasting room. They provide all the glasses. It's pretty simple to do. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of interest for people to kind of get their wine on this list because I would imagine, you know, if you get some, if you're highlighted and celebrated in all the local publications around you, that's a good look for your winery. Absolutely. That's that's why they submit their wines. That's why we can get a bottle of a $225 bottle of wine. And yeah. we open it and we share it between 25 people. But guess what? The winery isn't getting any money out right. of that. 
they're donating that bottle of wine. Yeah. And we, we never have any problem getting wines. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Such a nice gig. I mean, are you surprised by how much it's grown, the interest that has kind of followed it over the last 10 years? I am. I am surprised about that. Uh, but as we've gotten better at doing it, uh, as people read it in the St. Lena Star and the Napa Valley Register and the Calistogan, there's more and more awareness. I mean, and it's going online. Uh, people know about it. And I'm surprised that, that they're, they're doing it. But guess what? Nobody else that I know of is doing this. Yeah. Right? I mean, you can work for a newspaper or a magazine, and maybe you'll have two or three other people talking about wines, talking about their favorites. How many pallets is that? Yeah. That's, that's just two three. or three pallets. Yeah. We got 25. And they, it's all blind. They're all in bags. You can't tell what they are. That's and great. you mark it one through six, one being your favorite, six being your worst. And we put it on a spreadsheet and we figure out the whole panel's idea of what were the best wines. Wow. Do you guys get response from the vineyards themselves? I mean, are people with these labels, you know, saying like, hey, this like vendors panel has like really helped us move this specific wine? Or is there anything like that? We don't get a lot of reaction. Um when we do, it's usually because we've misspelled somebody's name. <laughs> uh, but we know it. We know it that it's making a difference. And one of the one of the prime people who's involved in this is Catherine Bouguet, and she's the writer. She's the person who's there, a professional wine taster. She's co-owner of the Napa Valley Wine Academy, um, and does a tremendous job writing up these stories. Because guess what? After the tasting, after we go through three or four flights of wines, we talk about them, and everybody's talking and giving their opinions, and this is pretty blunt. So she's trying to create, craft an article out of that that talks about what's going on and quoting people. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think conversation about wine is probably one of the more interesting parts of it because for someone like me who's kind of an outsider and they you know, didn't know a lot about wine until they got here, and you know, my roommate is a winemaker, you know, and then I have a bunch of friends who are all just involved in the industry, I noticed that the way that people talk about wine and the way that they describe it and drink it and you know, celebrate it, in this area alone is so unique compared to the outside world. And I think it's kind of, you know, I, I feel like I'm spoiled because of it. Because when I drink wine here and I go somewhere else, it's like I'm always sort of looking at it through the lens of like a Napa Valley label. And if it's not up to that par or that standard that's been set by just the quality of even these lower end wines that are, you know, $40, $30, stuff like that. I mean, the quality of those, you you look for something different or something similar like that outside of here, it's, it's hard to get that. I think it is. The quality is in the Napa Valley. Yeah. Uh, people here pay a lot of money for a, for a ton of grapes, for a ton of Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. They, they uh, grow them in historic vineyards. Missouri Hopper is one. Tokalon is another. Robert Mondavi Winery Tokalon is a famous vineyard. Uh, Georges III uh, Bayou is a famous vineyard. Yeah, you know that that stuff is historic. It's it's fifty years old, or it's eighty years old, or it's one hundred and twenty five years old. You know, the first plant, grapes were planted here in the eighteen eighties. Yeah, uh, some of those not obviously not the grapevines, but the land is the same. And so you've got people here who care about the land, who care about their grapes and their vineyards and really want to produce excellent, excellent wine. And I think they're doing a really good job. And this tasting panel is showing that there's some really good wines out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, it's a tough job that you have being a part of this panel. I'm sure a lot of people like to have a spot on it, but 
Um, well, yeah. I've invited you, and you, you, one of these days you'll come. One of these days I'm going to come, yeah. Just for the sake of getting to say I tried a bunch of high-end wine <laughs> that I probably would never pay for <laughs> by itself. But uh, but thanks, Dave. I, I think that that's great, and that should cover everything for us today. Great. You're welcome. Thank you. Great to have Dave Stoneberg on. Um, he was a big supporter of the podcast from the very beginning of the idea, so... Um, nice to have him in there. Always a pleasure to chat with, even though it's probably obvious how little I know about wine. Um, I think it's, you know, if you ever see the Napa Valley Vintners mentioned, uh, in the paper, definitely read that story. It's a great way to learn about all the wine and things that are happening around you. Um, so let's transition to sports. Um, Marty James has been sports editor here for years and he's been with the paper for decades and he's one of the most knowledgeable people you'll ever find about Napa Valley and Napa County and surrounding athletics and Sacramento and just all these areas that are a huge hub of prep sports. And so Napa Vintage and American Canyon are on the verge of switching from the Saquakeen section, which is um, the section it's been in for a few decades. And it's, it's kind of built a long standing tradition of history and success there. But at the same time, uh, because of a lot of different elements kind of coming into play here in the Napa Valley over the last few years, it's uh, become a need, um, especially for the departments at these schools, to change and take a step back and sort of look at what's happening um, with the athletic landscape that they're involved in. So um, I think it's a prudent move. You'll, you know, we'll have a good discussion about it. I think Marty says a lot of really great things, and we get a lot of really great points out there about this. So hope you guys enjoy my chat with Marty on the Napa Valley Unified School District, switching from the Sacroquin section to the North Coast section. So let's just go ahead and sort of jump into this. Um, so last month, I think it's probably good to just establish a timeline first before we kind of get into the meat of everything, but last month, uh, Napa Valley Unified School District sent an application to the South Joaquin section that basically said uh, they wanted out and they wanted to move into the North Coast section. And then last week on Thursday, uh, the South Joaquin section alignment committee uh, voted 9-0 uh, to approve the move. And so next, I guess, is to go to the, the board of managers for the section to get approved in April. And then the schools, if it is approved, will have to go in front of the North Coast section and kind of make a presentation, um, and after that, they'll kind of make the determination of whether or not um, they're going to move. But it kind of seems like um, everything is indicating that the move is going to go through. That's very true. Um, the Napa Valley Unified School District has several issues uh, at play here. Uh, number one is declining enrollment. Schools are not uh, at their uh, capacity. Uh, that's due to a number of things. Uh, people are not moving into this community. Uh, there's teachers that are accepting uh, incentive retirements to uh, retire early with a bonus on the table. Um, other areas in the Sacramento section are growing, in particular east of Sacramento in the Rockland, Folsom, El Dorado Hills, Roseville, uh, Elk Grove, Stockton, Modesto area. These areas are all growing. Uh, more schools are being built. American Canyon has uh, a brand new high school. Uh, in South Napa County is part of this uh, group of three schools along with Napa Vintage that on behalf of the Napa Unified School District are trying to uh, get the Board of Managers of the Sacramento section to approve 
at its meeting in April for uh, permission to leave the Sac Joaquin section beginning in late 2018. So they would play one more year in the Sac Joaquin use set before. If it's approved, they would then move to the North Coast section. But this is all pending approval by the board of managers by uh, the North Coast section. So there's still two big approvals still to go. One uh, by the Sac Joaquin section board of managers. Napa Vintage American Canyon need to be released by the board of managers and then be accepted by the North Coast section board of managers. But, you know, historically, you know, Napa Vintage American Canyon, Vallejo schools, they're, they're aligned, I think, closer geographically with Marin County, with Sonoma County, uh, than they are with... Uh, Which is the North Coast section. Yeah. yeah. that's where they cover. Yeah, and just in Siena, St. Helena, Calistoga, PUC Prep, Napa Christian, these are all North Coast section schools that seem very happy and comfortable in the North Coast section. You know, I can give you a, a couple of great examples. Yeah. When, when I've gone to Sacramento to cover playoff games on Fridays, takes me three or more hours. Yeah, you do a lot of meticulous planning yeah. just to prepare for it. I went to the Rockland City Library last year early and just read books and magazines and looked at my laptop for several several hours before I went to cover the Napa Rockland game because I, I don't want to sit in traffic for three hours and get frustrated. Right, right. And so, uh, but this is all taking into consideration, you know, budgets and transportation issues and uh, the health of a student athlete. Do you want your student athlete leaving school at noon for a seven o'clock game, you know, in the evening and then coming back at 12 or one o'clock in the morning and missing 12 hours of school? Right. I think this is what's at play right here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you're probably the best person to ask about this. Have you kind of seen any kind of decline in competitiveness with these schools in their own league and in the section? Because I feel like that might be something that could prompt this if they've, you know, maybe because I, I mean, in the two years that I've been here, I don't know if there have been any uh, Napa Unified School District teams besides American Canyon in the playoffs last fall that really made um, a run, I guess, just in the section just because it seems like, you know, the other teams that are popping up from Sacramento, teams that have, you know, that are just borderline 500, they're giving a lot more competitive push than, say, Napa or Vintage are. Yeah, Napa High, and this is a great, great tribute to the coach, Troy Mott, his football program has historically appeared in the Sac Joaquin section playoffs. I've seen them play you know, schools in that eastern Sacramento corridor, you know, up at El Dorado Hills against, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the school. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to that in a second. But when, when you've got to travel and take 40 to 50 players on the road and play a school that has 70 or 80 players, that the talent pool is so much greater in that area in, uh, you know, Eastern Sacramento going up towards Folsom yeah. and uh, Oak Ridge of Eldorado Hills. That's where I was uh, drawing a blank. Oak Ridge of Eldorado Hills, Folsom, Del Oro. These are powerhouse programs that dominate. And I think, you know, as competitive as the Napa schools are, you know, they just don't have the numbers yeah. uh, that these other schools have. I think it's, that's what it boils down to are numbers. And if you don't have depth or numbers, I think it's a, it's not a balanced playing field. Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the issues in the North Coast section that I think they remedied last year, and one of the more kind of interesting stories to come out of that section was that they instituted that new system that looks at playoff competition over a three-year span and how competitive are you. Instead of looking at just enrollment and determining, you know, if you have this many students, that means you're going to be successful for that reason alone instead of it being, 
you know, if you go to the playoffs and you beat a team, that you get this many points. If you beat two teams, you get this many points. If you win the section, you get this many. So it kind of looks at how competitive, like it's quality over quantity, essentially. And I think that's probably something that could probably benefit Napa schools. Yeah, I think what would benefit Napa schools is a, is a road trip to Sonoma County, uh, into uh, Petaluma, where, and, and Napa High has played Casa Grande, Vintage has played Petaluma. Mm-hmm. There's a history of, of relationships between Napa Valley Unified Schools and Sonoma County Schools, Marin County Schools, Contra Costa County Schools. I would think where uh, the North Coast Section Alignment Committee is going to be looking at placing Napa Vintage and American Canyon, should they get those permits and approvals to switch sections, is maybe the Sonoma County League or the North Bay League, possibly the Marin County Athletic League, uh, which already has Justin Siena. But these schools up here are, you know, less than 2,000 students. So that's that's big boy football. Yeah. That's, you know, uh, the top of the uh, heat, you know, when it comes to uh, enrollment. So uh, in 1975-76, these schools made that switch from the North Bay League to the Monticello Empire League from the North Coast section of the Sac Joaquin. But um, the way I see it, Yusef, is that, um, you know, I, I think the day has come where there's just not the growth right now in Napa Valley Unified yeah. uh, to warrant staying in the Sac Joaquin section and, and playing these powerhouse schools. Del Oro is a powerhouse. Yeah. Folsom is a powerhouse. Oak Ridge is a powerhouse. Granite Bay, you know, you look at all of these great schools and Rockland, you know. Uh, There's a glass ceiling that they just yeah. can't break through right now. Right. It's, it's very, very difficult in the Mandy and, uh, you know, Napa High and uh, some of these schools have never shied away from playing the best of the best. But uh, I saw Vintage get hammered by Del Oro several years up in Loomis. And they had a running clock in the second half and nice. Vintage could not compete against Del Oro. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the North Coast section is a is a great section. It's got great leadership with Gil Lemon as the commissioner. There's great high schools. It's not as big of a, a section in terms of numbers. The Sac Joaquin is the second largest of California's ten athletic sections. But you know, geographically, it does take everything along the North Coast section up to Eureka into Alameda County, uh, parts a lot of Contra Costa County, Sonoma County, Marin County, and Napa County. And I think they're going to rename this conference the Sonoma. Mendocino Marin Napa Conference. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the competitive equity move last year kind of shows that they, they're they trying to take care of their schools, and it would be, I think, a very good fit for Napa and Vintage and American Canyon if they can get in a league where it's looking out for competitive equity and making the playing field more level going forward. Yeah, I think so. And, and you want your student-athletes and your teams to have a chance, and you want them to progress in the playoffs, and you want them to, uh, you know, have an opportunity to be successful and, uh, you know, I don't see that happening right now, uh, and that's just because there's just so much growth in the sidewalking section uh, where people can afford to live, where people can get jobs, where people can have a family, where people can, you know, uh, have a quality of life. And hey, quality of life in Napa is great. It's yeah. just great, you know, as any community county in America. But if there are some kind of interesting socioeconomic things happening. I mean, Noel Brinkroff wrote a story last week. I think about. Uh, just the declining enrollment, and they had, I guess there was a group that actually looked at it for on behalf of the school district, and it basically showed that, um, you know, it's declining at a rate that they didn't expect, and it's kind of speeding up. They projected, I think, by uh, 2026 for it to be, you know, they, to lose, you know, over almost 1,400 students, and that's a lot. And I think, you know, if, and one thing his story kind of mentioned is that the demographics are aging, 
there's not a high birth rate like there used to be and the affordability of housing I think plays into all of that and so it's kind of like when you can't necessarily keep you know students here and families here and you know for a long time that it's going to affect athletics and I think we're kind of seeing that happen. Yeah, you're right. I think that, you know, uh, the growth right now in Napa County is South County. That's American County. Yeah. And I think uh, if they do continue to build in that area, that's where people can buy and where they can have their students uh, attend Napa Valley Unified Schools. It's a great school district, great teachers, great uh, schools. Um, but, you know, I'll give you an example. I've been over to Sonoma County the last few years, and when I take those back roads, Highway 12, you know, into Sonoma, uh, Petaluma, Santa Rosa, there's no traffic at all. Yeah. And, you know, you're not waiting and waiting and waiting to get somewhere. You're you're there, you know. And uh, I think the North Bay Lake, you know, is a great, great lake. If Napa and Venice join that lake along with American Canyon or the Sonoma County Lake, I think a perfect lake for these three schools would be to group Casa Grande, Petaluma, Sonoma Valley with Napa, American Canyon, and Venice and call it a 16 Sonoma County Lake. Yeah. Now, there's also other schools in Sonoma County as well, so this is all dependent upon alignment and hearings and what the, what the North Coast section wants, but I think this is happening. I think it's real. I think it's uh, there's a very good chance it's going to happen. Uh, that's why they're meeting and having uh, all of this taking place right now, so uh, Napa Valley Unified and North Coast can make plans to uh, increase its section by three more schools starting in 2018. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like it's being, it's the momentum is there, and I'm curious if you've gotten any kind of, you know, gauge on the reception, what people might be saying, I mean, what administrators, coaches, and things yeah. like that. It seems like it's being kind of embraced by everyone. Yeah, Mark Morrison, Director of Secondary Ed for the Napa Valley Unified School District, uh, really wants to see these schools move. Uh, he works very closely with the three high school principals, Annie Petrie of Napa High, Mike Pearson, of Vintage and Damon Wright of American Canyon. Everybody is on the same page. Everybody wants this move to happen. Uh, I have not talked to the coaches or the parents or the student athletes, just the administrators. And uh, they have talked to the booster club members yeah. uh, to, to make them aware of this. But uh, I think it's a very positive move. I think that, uh, let, me, let me back up. Why should three of these high schools that are in Napa County not be playing in the North Coast section when St. Elena, and Justin Santa and Calistoga already are. Yeah. Trinity Prep, you know, maybe one day I want to make that move to the North Coast, but they would be the lone school uh, still playing South Joaquin Section Athletics. But, uh, and I will say this, Yusef, that the South Joaquin Section is a great section led by Mike Garrison, their commissioner, Ryan Toss, uh, Will Be Board, uh, a lot of great people in, in the section, a lot of pride, a lot of great schools, a lot of great athletic directors, coaches. Uh, and it's going to be uh, sad to see Napa and Vintage and American Canyon leave this this section if it happens because, you know, it is it is a great tackle-to-the-ground football hardcore section. Yeah. And uh, they really uh, dress for success, and they really go all out on Fridays. And, uh, and Napa in 07 won a section championship. Vintage in 2000, or in uh, 1980 and 1986 won section titles. Napa's been a runner-up twice. Vintage's been a runner-up twice so they've, they've competed very very hard and very successfully in this section but the growth right now is not happening right now in napa county it is and in, in other communities you know that right now it's not in napa yeah i mean i know it's hard for people always to accept change but i think this is one that'll probably benefit everybody involved so it's a good thing to talk about well thanks for coming on marty okay Yusuf. thank you
so here we are end of the episode hope you guys uh enjoyed the first edition of napa register radio um it was a lot of fun to make and took a lot more time than i thought it would to get it out there so i appreciate your patience with some of the dated references on some of the sessions uh it won't be like that going forward i promise um thanks again to maria sestito howard yoon marty james uh dave stoneberg and you know shout out to sean scully uh, boss man editor who has uh, you know helped us become uh, what it is and will be in the future. Also shout out to Kelly Dorn for the awesome logo that you're seeing on your phones and computers and everywhere that you're finding this. And um, thanks again. Uh, excited to do this. Looking forward for, to the ride in the future. And um, without any further ado, here's a funky outro. Mm-hmm.